My name is Andrew Kays, and I'm the pastor at Emmanuel Evangelical Lutheran Church of Paynes Point. That's in rural Oregon, Illinois. You're about to hear me preach. Now, this episode was recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, during which time public worship has been disrupted. We don't have it every Sunday. Therefore, all sermons have been recorded ahead of time to make them available online. Unless otherwise noted, all scripture is NRSV, used under the gratis policy of the copyright holder, the National Council of Churches. Our first reading comes from the 38th chapter of Job. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you and you shall declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed bounds for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stopped. Here ends the reading. Our second reading comes from the Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the fourth chapter. On that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to the disciples, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. Other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. Then the wind ceased and there was a dead calm. He said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the gospel of our Lord. Grace and peace to you, sisters and brothers in Christ. You know, it's been quite a while since we've spent some time with our old friend Job, so we're going to have to give him some attention today. We've got him here uh, today, and as is the case throughout the summer, the Old Testament reading is here to supplement the gospel reading in some way. There's a thematic connection, or there's something about the context or a reference that needs explaining. It expands on the gospel message. It shows how it's consistent with the whole scriptural tradition. Well, we're not going to get too much out of this Job reading on its own, because as it often goes, it's the kind of reading that requires some context. So, like I said, let's give Job a little bit of attention, a quick recap on what's relevant to today. Job is what's called wisdom literature. It joins with Proverbs and Ecclesiastes in offering three different perspectives in the Old Testament on the circumstances of the world and the human condition, and they're pretty bleak perspectives. In Job's case, we're mostly looking at the problem of evil. How can it be that there's a good God and yet evil, or suffering in this case, exists in God's world? See, Job presents the question a bit 
differently than the philosophers might. Because Job's a prosperous and godly man among the most devoted to have ever lived. And then we have Satan, an angel in the heavenly court whose name means accuser or tempter. He comes along and makes a wager with God. Paraphrasing quickly, Satan figures Job is only devoted because his life is so good. Throw some hardship his way, take some of that good away, and he'll renounce God for sure. So they set some terms and Satan goes out to make his case by making Job suffer. So the problem of evil in Job isn't presented as much as like a, a universal, impersonal concern as to explain like why are there natural disasters? How does God allow us to harm one another? Instead, it's more like specifically, why do bad things happen to good people? How can terrible things happen to even the best people? How can they go on being faithful to God despite those hardships? Now, some characters in the story will come along and give some bad answers to those questions in the same incorrect way that some of us still try to answer these questions today. For example, blame someone. His friends try to tell him that he or someone else must have sinned, and this is simply a punishment. The answer then is to repent, but that's not true. The incorrect arguments, according to Job, are the ones about consistent cosmic justice, that idea that, again, that if something happens to you, if something bad happens to someone, it must be because they or someone else did something bad. Like, it's always fair in some sense. And that idea certainly has its appeal. It would be nice if everything was perfectly fair, and thus that idea has crept up in a variety of religious traditions. But again, in ours, it's the wrong answer. People don't get sick, have accidents, or suffer calamity because of their sins against God. Nevertheless, Job presses on to find an answer. It's only once God has stepped in that we get sort of a resolution to these difficult questions, and our reading today is in that response that God gives directly to Job. The answer? God puts Job in Job's place. God asks him things like, who made all of this in the first place? Who allowed you to have life and prosperity at all? Who put the bounds on the sea, which, remember, is an allegory for chaos and death throughout the Bible? Who put them in their bounds so that you could live at all? So now, how dare Job question the way God has arranged the circumstances of the world? See, this is a fantastic and hyperbolic story. You've got the best person, brought to ruins by Satan himself as the, uh, as the epitome of what we would regard as a cosmic injustice, the uh, chief example of the brokenness in the way the world works. And then in another extreme, God takes Job to see the vastness of creation and tells him, just accept it. This is the way it works. In my reading of Job, there's an important detail that I have thus far left out, but bring it in now. Job is regarded, I would say by most scholars, and I certainly am inclined to agree, as the oldest story of the New Testament, You know, setting aside the first couple chapters of Genesis, because it appears to predate those covenantal relationships God has with the Abrahamic people. For example, there's no mention of Israel at all, and it doesn't take place in Israel. It could theoretically even take place before Noah's time. Now, that seems important because we've now, since, had thousands of years of studying, deliberating, philosophizing, 
theologizing. And there are a few religious traditions out here with complex yet congruent, like all the pieces fit, belief systems that have much better answers to these questions than Job's friends could come up with. As God has revealed God's self over the millennia, chiefly in Christ, and God's people have spent lifetimes in relationship with God, chiefly through Christ, we probably would write the story a bit different today. Now, that's not at all to say God's wrong at the end here, like God should have just given him those better answers that we have today, or hopefully one of them's right. You know, and if he had just explained it, that would have put Job's heart and mind at ease, because that's likely, it's just not what Job needed, and maybe Job couldn't have accepted it anyway, or even understood it. What Job needed instead, evidently, because it's what God gives him, is a stern reminder that all he had suffered and lost, the life itself, was only there to begin with because of God. So, as a matter of purely personal interpretation, I would say Job gets this sort of sit down and shut up response, because Job was just too inwardly focused. His faith maybe really was anchored in some of those comforts, because once they went away, he was just so worried about himself in the midst of a difficult time. Yet for all of God's time living in relationship with humanity, the call has been to worry about others first, God and neighbor. Now, what in the world does that have to do with Jesus? Well, we've got a pretty famous scene here, one of the most famous in the Gospels. They're on a boat, and the storms pick up, and all the disciples are afraid, but there Jesus is taking a nap with the one cushion they have on board. Throughout Scripture, again, I mentioned it before, the seas, the stormy seas especially, are used as allegories for chaos and death. So the same thing that God put, its, put boundaries around in Job is now encroaching upon the disciples and Jesus. And today, that allegory for them becomes much more literal. The disciples genuinely believe they're going to die because they went out to the sea in the dark and got caught in a storm. But, you know the story, you just heard it again. They rouse Jesus, and Jesus tells the sea, peace, be still. Another way, another little bit nicer way of saying, sit down and shut up. The same thing God told Job in a manner of speaking. And then Jesus turns the rebukes to the disciples. Why are you afraid? Where is your faith? During a moment of fear, the disciples could have looked to Jesus, who remained calm. But instead, they followed another example, the sort of example Job set. They were considering themselves and what they might lose, so they could not stay calm and consider what They know to be true on a good day. Like God is good, creation is good. They are safe in the presence of God. And even if all is lost, thank God they had it in the first place and thank God for what comes next. Now we should be sympathetic of the disciples and Job that we, uh, well, most of us would do exactly the same thing. We know it on a good day that we're safe and secure, but when a bad day rolls around, all of a sudden we forget and give in to fear and panic. Finally, a connection that's left us with a question. The disciples ask, who is this that commands the winds and the sea? Much like God listing his resume in Job, creating and directing the world, setting those boundaries, the disciples finally realize, or at least they're starting to realize, that's the kind of authority that's in the incarnate Christ. 
And they are learning slowly but surely, even if it's the hard way, that they can trust this Jesus as their savior. Even if the forces of chaos and evil and death are there. Because those forces bow before the incarnate Christ. They bow before the authority of God. And at that point, and once they know that and have that relationship with God through Christ, their lives of faith become a matter of perspective rather than circumstance. Even if the hardship rolls around, they don't have to dwell in the hardship. They don't have to spend their days looking inward, worrying about what they might lose. Instead, look to God who established and sustained the world, who created and redeemed you. That's how we overcome those forces, or at least the fear that they instill. That's the way we find calm in the midst of the storm, by putting our eyes on and our trust in the one who created it all and has authority over it all. Amen. Thanks for listening. I pray God spoke to you in some way. A quick note at the end here, which you can skip if you've heard it before. The audio of my sermons does not always include proper citations. While I do some self-study and lean on my seminary education, I also lean on my colleagues with whom we have a regular text study. I also use Luther Seminary's Working Preacher website and their podcast, Sermon Brainwave. Some credit is due to at least one of those sources. Wherever you are, whenever you hear this, please be well. Take care of yourself and each other, and have a great rest of the week.